This is the Comic Shenanigans Podcast, episode 436, a conversation with Fred Benlente. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 436. It's our conversation with Fred Van Lente. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Before we jump right into the episode and the great conversation that I had with Fred, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping, as this is the last episode of Comic Shenanigans before the Christmas holidays. This is going up on December 23rd. So happy holidays and Merry Christmas to those who celebrate Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate Hanukkah. And for those who celebrate other of those, happy holidays to whatever those holidays are and whenever they might be. Um, and also also, uh, well, in case you don't listen to our next episode, depending on how late it's going to end up going out, our next non-reviewed episode, I should say, also a Happy New Year. Uh, so we're going to get right into this episode. So Fred Van Lente is a fantastic writer. Uh, we had a chance to sit down and have a conversation over Skype a few weeks ago, uh, talking about his career, talking about some of the, the highlights, his partnership with Greg Pak, um, writing Supervillain Team Up. Um, Modox 11, which is one of my favorite miniseries of all time, and I was really jazzed to be able to chat with him about it. Uh, so that's all coming up in just a moment. As always, you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, in the next month or so, we're going to have a repeat uh, performance. We're going to have another um, uh, shot at talking with Howard Mackey, um, acclaimed writer uh, who wrote a lot of books in the 90s and then hasn't really been around as much lately, uh, but he has some new products percolating in the new year. So we're going to be sitting down to talk with him sometime in uh, January. Um, also in January, we should be having a conversation with Mark Buckingham. Uh, this is something that I've been trying to do for a little while, um, and hopefully we'll be able to have a conversation soon. I'm really excited about this. Uh, also, at some point in 2017, I'm going to be guesting on a new podcast. I'll give uh, some new information as it becomes available and when that podcast actually gets launched. It hasn't been launched yet, but I'm very excited to be uh, part of a, a new endeavor, um, which I think, uh, I could be wrong, but I think it was inspired in somewhat uh, by a conversation I actually had on this podcast. Uh, that's as much of the teasing I will have, uh, I think. But I think uh, a conversation was had about something uh, that may have um, given one person a great idea to start a new podcast on something that hadn't been talked about about yet uh, in terms of regular series and I think it's going to be really exciting and I can't wait to be part of that. So that's all coming up in the new year. Uh, also, we're finally going to be starting to do a uh, half event recap, half flashback, half spotlight on the Age of Apocalypse. Now, I uh, throughout the last few years, I would whenever we did a, a recap or a flashback event, uh, like Clone Saga or Onslaught, etc., uh, I had mentioned with uh, Paul Scores and Nathan Struck that at some point we should do Age of Apocalypse. Well, one of our listeners uh, definitely called me out on it and said, hey, why don't you do this? This is, sounds like a great idea. Uh, and I know that a friend of mine had for years been saying, you guys got to do this. Spend as many episodes as you need. Talk about the Age of Apocalypse because uh, for some people, it has a, a very um, uh, warm place in your heart, um, and I know it does for me. So that's something that we're going to be doing in the new year as well. We're finally going to be recording that, hopefully in January. Uh, it's going to probably be, it could be a couple episodes, uh, just kind of breaking it up with the different miniseries that were part of AOA, and then kind of doing an overall recap. So that's a lot of great stuff coming in the new year. Uh, let's jump right in, though, with the conversation with Fred Van Lente. But before I do it, once again, you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Happy holidays, and here's a conversation with Fred. Fred, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So usually I like to go way, way back and say, what's the origin of Fred when it comes to comics? Uh, my father was a 
casual comics fan. He was a big fan of the Spirit and Blackhawks, which are both Will Eisner creations. And someone had given him, uh, in his, for his birthday, so it was 1966, so it would have been his 25th birthday, they gave him a copy of a book called The Great Comic Book Heroes. Now, Jules Pfeiffer, who's most famous for being the Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist for The Village Voice, started out as Will Eisner's assistant hmm. in when Will Eisner was post-war doing The Spirit and some commercial art and some other comics. Uh, and so Pfeiffer wrote this essay. Um, I don't know when exactly he wrote the essay, but it first appeared in The New Yorker. And it's this very satirical look very loving look at the early comic scene of the 40s and all the shops and all the the packagers that sprung up around Manhattan that were just rooms of guys drawing and writing and editing and, and arguing about comics. Um, and this became such kind of uh, just being popular enough that they brought out a book that had the essay and it's some of like um, when Pfeiffer was a kid, he drew a bunch of, like, superheroes. You know, like, a lot of us who were comics fans, I certainly did. I don't know if, don't know if you did. I drew my own comics when I was 10, you know. <laughs> Partly inspired, I'm sure, by this Pfeiffer book. Uh, and then it also had a bunch of uh, reprints of very early Superman and Batman and Captain America and The Spirit and Human Torch and Hawkman and a lot of these really superhero comics. And I discovered this... I didn't come along until six years after the fact, after I got this book. And I love this book so much that I made my mother read it to me over and over and over again. Wow. To the point where she was just like, I, this is getting ridiculous. I'm not going to read you the same stupid single reason these crazy superhero <laughs> stories over and you, you're going to read, I'm going to read something else to you. But being a stubborn lad, I got the book on my own and I sort of stared at the pictures, stared at the words until soon enough I could read much earlier than anyone else in my class or so my mother tells me and so that she sort of was sort of impressed by that so like this this book that Pfeiffer did so I started very early on the reprints and then my parents got me like reprints of like pocket books did reprints of the early Marvel stuff so I got uh, really all the Ditko stuff like I got Doctor Strange and Spider-Man and uh, they had Hulk and Fantastic Four and so I, I really grew up very early on in the 70s reading stuff from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Wow. Gives you a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, breadth of history growing up, so you're not just in your own era, but other eras as well. Sure. Well, when you're a kid, everything is new anyway, right? So it, like, it didn't occur to me that this was all quote-unquote old. Like, to me, it was just, you know, comics, you know, and it was all it was all great. And, and eventually, you know, you grow up and you can buy your own comics, you know, for 35 cents. I love the, in the 70s, DC did these things called the Blue Ribbon Digest that were for a dollar, so they were like, oh, they were really expensive, right? But they were like, you know, little digest comics, like the, the archie size digests with like, it must have been 100, 120 pages of reprints from sort of their entire history from the, but I guess mostly it was mostly 50s, 60s, and 70s stuff. Wow. Like they did like, you know, Legion of Superheroes and Green Arrow, and each character kind of had his, his or her own digest and so I love that stuff I love the old stuff very early on that's sort of what I was weaned on do you still have any of that old material 
Oh, sure. I mean, just, uh, I just finished, I just got the Machine Man. I'm a big Machine Man fan. I had written Machine Man for some time. Uh, and so I, love, I think that's a really underrated Kirby run. And so when Marvel just came out with the, they reprinted the entire run of the series, which Kirby began and Steve Ditko ended. So that's neat to sort of have that bookend there. Nice. Now, when did you decide, you know, I, I can write these things or I can write it all? <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I saw in the Pfeiffer book that Pfeiffer had put in, um, you know, now that I think about it, I don't even know if I, it connected into my child's brain that Pfeiffer was this world-famous cartoonist. I just thought he was some guy, you know, mm-hmm. writing about comics. But he had put in his childhood drawings, and he'd, like, mocked up, like, a, like a golden age, you know, like in the old golden age superhero comics, they were all 64 pages and there were like 12 terrible superheroes in it. And like the roster, of the superheroes with their heads would be on the left hand side of the cover, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. while the main character who's the, you know, gold sphinx or whatever is punching the gangsters and the Nazis or Hitler or whatever it is on the cover. And I, I think that I started doing that not to emulate comics, but to emulate Jules Pfeiffer emulating golden age comics. So I would do my child version of, the child Jules, Jules Pfeiffer drawing his own interpretation of comic books he grew up with. So I, I'm sort of steeped in the the 30s and 40s stuff just really from from the jump. And I and I, but it's a, it's a good question when I made the leap from that to. I mean, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a prose novelist fairly early on, like 12, 13. Um, and then I I wrote some, but I. I didn't really have an idea. It was very mysterious where comics came from. I wrote to Mark. I wrote to Marvel. I think I wrote specifically to Mark Gruenwald. I don't know why Mark Gruenwald specifically. <laughs> uh, you know, saying I wanted to be in comics. It was like I was like fifteen, sixteen. He wrote me. He wrote me back wow. and sent me a plot for a Roger a Roger Stern Marvel style plot for uh, one of his. Uh, issues from the his 80s Avengers run that John Buscema drew. I, they fought the awesome android. He did a whole storyline where the various robots of the Marvel Universe were being kidnapped. And That's right, yeah. You know, I forget whether it was Machine Smith or who the the bad big bad was of that particular storyline. But but so I had that, and and that was very cool. So now, how did you enter the industry? So let's, let's fast forward a little. So you, sure. you've been a big fan. How, did, how does your entry into the industry happen? Uh, I did a lot of writing of prose in high school, but I thought I should be well-rounded and I was getting into movies a lot, so I decided to go to school for uh, movie making. And so I went to Syracuse and got in the movie making program there where – much to my confusion and horror, I discovered I hated making movies. <laughs> there's a lot of standing around. There's a lot of lugging heavy equipment. There's a lot of... But I, I got in right before the really the digital, digital revolution happened, so we were still, you know, any film students listening to this will get this. So you, you, there was a lot of manipulation of rolls of celluloid in black bags to, you know, prevent exposure. The, the lab fees of developing the film was, was killing me financially and, and and I just didn't like there was too much I felt like it was too much work for the very simple I, I was only interested in the storytelling aspect the writing aspect of it so 
uh, except that being the genius that I was, I went to a school that had no undergraduate um, creative writing department, so I was, I was kind of screwed. <laughs> but uh, I was a member of the comic book club, which by a bizarre coincidence, the a kid who went to my high school in a small town in Ohio founded it in Syracuse, New York, which is completely bizarre. And so uh, I had a bunch of friends there who were all studying to be comic artists, some of whom, you know, many of whom were super talented and I just ended up moving with them in New York to break, try to break into the comic industry after school. And one of them, Steve Ellis, uh, got work from Marvel and DC like before he graduated. So he's, he did Spider-Woman, he did Iron Man. Um, he followed Jeff Kassad on Ninjax, so he worked for Valiant, he worked for Malibu. Um, and so he and I were pals and we, we worked on stuff together. We actually sold Malibu a series that later became this book called The Silencers. Oh, yeah. This was right before uh, Marvel shut. Marvel owned Malibu at that point, but then shut them down before they could publish the silencers. So we ended up doing it on our own much later. But yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty much what happened. Is is my buddies got into the industry, and then I kind of rode their coattails to a certain degree. <laughs> and then what? Was, I guess was silencers kind of your first kind of calling card that helped you get future work, or how did that work out? It, sort of, yeah. Steve and I did a science fiction comic called Tranquility that was optioned for a movie by an outfit called Platinum Studios, who then hired me to write a book called Cowboys and Aliens. And that was the first professional gig I had where somebody actually paid me money to do a comic. Um, and in the interim, Steve and I were still working on comics. And we did The Silencers with a smaller publisher. And uh, Wizard actually gave us this glowing review and that helped us get us into the hands of a Marvel editor, and then I got hired uh, to pitch. They asked me to pitch at Marvel, and they'd been unable. That was, in the, but that took. I mean, you know, I just described ten years of my life in like seven sentences. Um, well, that's how the that's how the the first few years usually work out, right? <laughs> sure, right. Well, it's only in my case. Um, yeah, and then they haven't been able to me since. You know, I, my first Marvel comic came out in two thousand five. It was Amazing Fantasy, and uh, yeah. What My was, next comic is coming out in like five months or something. <laughs> <laughs> what was that initial pitch process like with Marvel? I mean, was that how did you approach that? Was that pretty nerve wracking to be able to to pitch for them? Oh yeah, definitely. This was an earlier time in Marvel. I think they were still kind of this was pre the MCU, and they were more sort of throwing stuff against the wall to see what's. This is in two thousand and four. At Marvel dot com, they had run a contest for people to vote as for which combo character Marvel character to have a complete makeover. And I feel like people did not really understand what it is they were voting for. Because the character that won was the Spider-Man villain, the Scorpion. That's right. I remember that. And so I get this note from Marvel saying, we're going to make the Scorpion a teenaged female shield agent. Would you like to pitch on this? And I was like, sure. So, I uh, delved back into my vast knowledge of nerdery and came up with the idea that the Viper and the Silver Samurai got drunk in Madripoor one night, and the result was this girl, this mutant girl, who came to be him, Scorpion. And the story was her trying to find out the true story of her parentage. She'd been adopted, blah, blah, blah. So, I turned to this uh, pitch... 
And, you know, three or four days later, maybe it was a week later, the, the head writes back and says, hey, I, this is great, you did a great job, but we're going to go with another writer. Um, thanks, but no thanks, you know. But this was great, and, you know, maybe the opportunity will rise again for you to work for us. I was like, oh, cool. You know, it's, I'm bummed out they didn't get the pitch. Mm-hmm. They didn't take the pitch, but I, I got my foot in the door. Not two days later, the same editor calls me up and says, hey, we fired the fire of the first writer. So uh, we're going to do your pitch. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. And he goes, but there's one problem. Uh, we're using Viper and Silver Samurai and Wolverine, so you can't use Viper or Silver Samurai. And I'm like, but my literally my entire idea is the Scorpion is the daughter of the Silver Samurai and the Viper. And he's like, yep, neat on Thursday, bye, click, you know. <laughs> So after, after like 17 heart attacks, I came up with a different backstory of the character that involved AIM and some other things, and so that that came out. That was my that was that was amazing fantasy sevens. So that was my first uh, Marvel work. It's actually a great experience if, if you look at it as a, a way to figure out how to compromise and adapt and get something done. Well, you know all this stuff. Particularly in mainstream comics, I think in entertainment in general, but but definitely mainstream comics, it's, it's all, you know, the deadline is always on your ass. You know, it's always breathing down your neck, and you just have to be able to adapt. You know, people who can't adapt in this industry tend not to get work. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask, what led to the creation of the uh, supervillain team-up Modox 11? Well, after I had done Amazing Fantasy... Uh, I started pitching some other things, and one of the things I and so so as I so the the book the silencer as I mentioned before they got me the job at Marvel was basically Sopranos with superpowers. It was about a bunch of superpowered uh, mob enforcers who uh, have to become independent operators once the mafia family they work for gets wiped out. And so I thought, well, Marvel liked that, so I will pitch them another villain series, and I always like the old super villain team up with Doctor Doom and Submariner and so on. Uh, and so I pitched them like this heist book where a bunch of villains get together and rob some cosmic entity, except Marvel, God bless them. Marvel, Marvel loves sending me on suicide missions. The problem is I keep coming back. <laughs> Didn't work. Fuck it. Let's send them on. Give him Hercules. Fuck it. Send them out there. But now I was like, so I was like, uh, I had, uh, so I was like, you know, so they wouldn't let me use Dr. Doom. They wouldn't let me use Sabretooth. They wouldn't let me use like, like the literally the list of villains went from A-list to B-list to C-list to D-list. The only the only character they would let me use was MODOK. And so I was like, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then fuck it. I'm just going to do a crazy heist with completely loser Z-list villains, and that's going to be the whole thing. <laughs> um, I absolutely love this book. Like, I, I, I would say it's one of my favorite miniseries I've ever read. Like, it's so much fun. Um, I remember reading when it first came out, and it was so many great twists and the, the eclectic use of characters, and yeah, I absolutely love it. So I've just being able to talk to you about it at all is is a thrill. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. No, it's one of my favorite things that I was done, and you know, I'm I love Francis Portella, and I'm doing a book with Francis right now. Nice. What? Uh, which, which? What is there anything in that book like that you are surprised they let you do? Really? I mean, no one gave a crap about these characters. Like, what? One of the things you need to learn about mainstream comics, about 
you know, sort of going inside the sausage factory is that is it is it the way they've set up these companies is their 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 little fiefdoms where you know one editor runs the Superman books or one editor runs the X Men books, right? So and they're constantly in Mortal Kombat with everyone around them to retain control of their various characters. So you either need to, A, as, as a writer, you either need to have total um, trust and the backing of those editors to use people, or you have to choose characters that absolutely no one gives a shit about. And so with Modox 11, I literally chose no, no one gave a crap out of those characters. Um, not even Modoc, really. Um, so, I'm not surprised they let me do any... They didn't... If I remember correctly, what happened, it was such a weird situation because, like, it was such a poorly thought-out book. I think they delayed it for, like, a year. Like, the first issue was done. And I think a couple scripts were done. They had to put it on hi- hiatus. And for whatever reason... Honestly, I don't know why they published it, frankly. Because it took them a year to sort of put it out. Um... But yeah, really good. Got a really good online reaction. You know, the sales weren't great, but it is a book starring Modoc, so you know, set your expectations accordingly. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, it, it was really well received, and sort of, uh, you know, again was another kind of feather in my cap over at Marvel, and, and made people sort of take notice of me. Was there a character in the cast that you found um, that you were surprised by how much you enjoyed writing them? I like making Rocket Racer like this kind of Urkel esque nerd, and <laughs> and it was just not fun sort of messing with them. I loved uh, I loved doing I loved Metallo. It was just this kind of you know sleazy operator. Um, uh, Nightshade it was always a favorite of mine from the seventies. It was fun writing her as this kind of working class mad scientist, which is not an archetype you see a whole lot very much. Uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed the way people responded to it. And Francis just killed it on the art. Absolutely, no, he did an amazing job. I, I, uh, I think your book is part of why I like the spot so much. <laughs> like, right, the spot. Yeah, the spot got kind of a. Uh, he was the first character I used in my Spider-Man run, and he's had kind of a renaissance since then. Yeah, because he's an interesting character who never really got a lot of face time, um, but everyone kind of knows him anyway. <laughs> It's a fun character. I did a signing with Al Milgram a couple of years ago who created the spot. And I was like, I love the spot. And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> he was kind of playing his own. Actually, what I really praised was he did a great run on Guardians of the Galaxy with Steve Gerber. And he was like, I'm thinking about it. He was, almost, he was almost horrified that someone remembered that stuff. He was like, oh, that was so long ago. When did your, your, part, your uh, writing partnership with Greg Pak start? They wanted to... Greg was writing World War Hulk, which was the big comics event of, I believe it was 2007. I think that's right. And they wanted to spin a book out of it with the Renegades, who were these characters that were supporting them, were the few superheroes. Again, 
the only characters that the Hulk office can get <laughs> is the motley crew of Hercules, Namora, Amadeus Cho, my female Scorpion character. And I, in Angels, bizarrely, they got Angel. I still don't understand how that ha- how that worked. Uh, and so I was, you know, the creator of the Scorpion, and she was going to be on the team, and Greg's workload was, was really, you know, pretty overloaded at that point, so they brought me on as co-writer. Uh, by that point, they had decided that, that Marvel was doing too many team books, so they decided to just turn it into a book featuring Hercules, but would also have Amadeus as a sidekick because they liked how Greg wrote the interplay to them in Incredible Hulk. So, so largely it was just because, and I'd never met Greg before. Like we were just kind of thrown together, but fortunately we hit it off really well. Wow, because yeah, those those books that you guys wrote together with Hercules were absolutely fantastic. Like. A lot of humor, a lot of you know, pathos, but a great sense of adventure and fun. Thank you. Yeah, no, we had a great time doing it. I mean, because it's interesting because comics are often, you know, they get a little dour, they get a little depressing, and that book just always felt like I had an optimistic core. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was just, it was, what was fun about it was I liked the idea of sort of reinventing a classic character and making him my own, and, you know, the way... You know, Grant Morrison did with Animal Man or Elmore did with Swamp Thing or something like that. And that was cool that I was able to cross that off my bucket list. I felt really happy about that. Uh, fast forwarding, um, I'm going to skip around a little. Um, what led you and Greg to actually work on Alpha Flight? Because um, I'm a big fan of that book. Obviously, I'm Canadian, so I'm a little predisposed. But yeah. I really enjoyed that run. I was so sad that it was shortened. Or I guess lengthened and shortened. Yeah, that that was an odd time. I mean, that's a good question. I don't really remember. I mean, I'm a huge like John Byrne's Outlight was with hands down my favorite modern comic when I was a kid. Um, partly because of his art, partly because the the the, the characters were so just ridiculously dysfunctional. Like they took the X Men angst and then turned it up to eleven. Absolutely. Um. It led me to worry about the overall, you know, being 12. I didn't really understand what the general emotional stability of Canadians was. But <laughs> I was concerned in the 80s about the nation as a whole. But, uh, uh, gosh, you know, I don't remember. I think it was one of those things where Mark Panicia, who was our Hercules editor and was the Hulk editor, somehow found himself in control of Alpha Flight. And it was just one of those things where... It was it was sort of this legendary impossible nut to crack, you know. Um, I think it was you know Mike Bignola couldn't crack out. I think Alpha was his first big gig. I guess, I guess actually did the Hulk. He was on the Hulk for a while because they swapped over the teams. But you know, so I my buddy Steve and I actually come up on our own. Steve Ellis, uh, the aforementioned co-creator of the Silences, we just for fun we came up with an Alpha pitch that involved them being outlaws. And I think our pitch involved apocalypse taking over the Canadian government somehow. I don't even remember what the <laughs> project was. But the whole point of it was uh, what if you're a you know you're a, you know I guess in Captain America they've done this a bit, but but take a nationalist superhero and. What if then the nation turns against them, and how do you deal with that? You know, and then you're outlaws. You know, um, and a lot of it had to do with, but you know, again, a lot of it had to do with Madison Jeffries, and the ex office would not give us Madison Jeffries because 
they couldn't spare him from his job spouting off exposition for three panels and various random X-Men books to let us use him and actually have get put in the story. Well, that was not allowed. Huh. Uh, initially, they wouldn't let us have Northstar and his boyfriend kiss. Like, it's amazing even thinking about that. This is, what, 2010? They're like, oh, I don't know, this is going to play in Peoria, you know? But then finally they reneged and let us kiss. Uh, yeah, they just drove us crazy. And, like, they wouldn't give us Puck. And then after the first issue... They're like, use Puck! And so suddenly Puck, for no reason, appears in the second issue of the Outflight series in the lab. He's, he's in the lab! Sure! I don't know, what the fuck? He was dead in Wolverine, like, six months ago. But he's alive again! Fuck it! You know. Because uh, we did... The, the Hercules concluded with this thing called Chaos War, where part of it was... Uh, death was killed, and the under, everyone the underworld got... Everyone got booted out of the underworld. So, you know... Famously, Brian Bendis killed off Alpha Flight, essentially off-panel in New Avengers, um, because he could. So we, we, because we could, we just brought them back. Uh, and so, you know, so then we ended up bringing back Marina and a lot of characters who had been kind of, you know, uh, you know, shuffled off the Mortal Coil. I think at that point, the only people in Alpha Flight who were actually still alive was Snowbird, who we used in, the, in our Hercules run. Mm-hmm. God Squad, and uh, they were all dead. I guess Heather Hudson was still alive. Yeah, I still now I can't alive. remember who was dead. Yeah. Well, they, we brought back Guardian, which was kind of a big deal, which was sort of part of why they wanted to bring it back because Guardian was back alive from the first time since you know, not a robot since Alpha Flight Twelve or whatever, not a clone or an android or an alien or whatever. Um, God, I love comics. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's very cool. People, many, many Canadian people, in fact, come up and tell me how much they love the run. I really appreciate it. But I just, it just, it, it, you know, and I, and I also enjoyed it because I love working with Daily Wisham. He's so awesome. Oh, his, his artwork is absolutely gorgeous. He's amazing. He and Tom Fowler must fight for the role, for the, for the honor of world's angriest Canadian. Um, <laughs> but Dale is the greatest. Um, but it just, you know, they, it just, it was such a fight from day one that I, it's just doing it so unpleasant <laughs> that it's hard for me to go, yay, <laughs> you know. Fair enough. So, I mean, it's interesting. So when they ended, I was like, thank God. <laughs> that fucking's finally over. You know, because also it's like, like, literally this is my favorite comic when I was a child. So, you know, it's also sort of a classic, uh, uh, be careful what you wish for type scenario. Yeah. Because well, it. Just ended up, I, because it also it also was part of Fear itself, which was not exactly Marvel's best received um, crossover. And so there's just a lot. There's just a lot of problems. I mean, as a reader, I can at least say that it didn't feel like the, you know, kind of clusterfuck you're describing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, you know, fortunately with a team book where there's a bazillion characters, you can kind of paper over a lot of that stuff. You know what I mean? Because That's you can true. just well. Now Aurora has a major story arc, but she didn't fuck it, you know. Uh, I know we're running, we're running a little short on time. Um, I just want to I'll kind of quickly ask a few kind of bullet point questions, um, sure. even though they could be longer answers, but I know we don't have a lot of time here. Yeah, it's um, all right. It's cool. It's cool. It's not a hard out. We can just go. Um, what was it like uh, creating X-Men Noir? Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was originally a pitch for an Angel series, the 30s Angel who appears in X-Men Noir, 
Uh, it was actually going to be a re- relaunch of uh, Marvel Mystery Comics. Okay. Which was one of Marvel's first titles. Uh, well, technically it was Marvel's first title, but it was called just Marvel Comics. Um, but I think to make it more commercial, they wanted to tie it into, they just approved a Spider-Man noir pitch. So they decided to make it sort of a whole line. And it was it was pretty successful. Absolutely. Well, there's a number of them. And I guess you did the two X-Men series, right? Yes. Yeah, Dennis and I did that. And I became friends with Dennis and we're buddies to this day. Nice. We just did Assassin's Creed Templars this year from Titan. Uh, another uh, quick one. Uh, what was it like working on Dark Rain, Mr. Negative? That was my first real book for the Spider-Man office, and I, that got me the gig on Spider-Man, so that was very cool. And I have to ask, what was it like writing Spider-Man? Oh, well, it was a real dream come true. I mean, Alpha Flight was my favorite sort of modern comic, but Spider-Man was my favorite character, and I guess the really the lead Ditko Spider-Man run is probably my favorite run of all time, just... So that was that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing the summits and hanging out with uh, Mark Wade and Dan Slott and and Zeb Wells and Joe Casey and all those guys. Not Joe Casey, uh, Joe Kelly. We all had a we all had a lot of fun, and I really had a good time doing that. So I mean, like, how long were you kind of in the quote unquote writers' room at the time? A year and a half, I think. And I was doing Web of Spider Man. I was the other thing was I was doing Web of Spider Man, which was this kind of anthology book, and I was writing stories about the various villains. Um, at the same time of scripting various issues of the Amazing Run, so by the time they decided to um, you know do away with the web heads thing and just give the whole kit and caboodle to Dan, I that was another situation. I was like, good. <laughs> he was like, thank God. It got was, a little much. Out by the end of that, I was like, oh God. I mean, it was a, it was a fast pace too, right? I mean, there were so many books coming out. Yeah, well, it was it was there was only two titles. Initially, just amazing, and then Web and Spider-Man was kind of this weird anthology book. Um, but yeah, Amazing came out three times a uh, month, so and it was a bit of a challenge to coordinate all the different, um, you know, creative teams and the writers and stuff. But Steve Wacker and T.F. Tom Brennan did a very good job. With that. Um, what was it like, kind of working on the Marvel Zombies miniseries that you worked on, kind of inheriting those? <laughs> Yeah, from from Robert. Yeah, no, it was it was another sort of again another story. You know, again, yet again, it's a story of we will not give you Wolverine, Spider Man, the Hulk. Like the Marvel Zombies made an incredible shit ton of money for Marvel, but the brass, you know, were terrified about you know little Timmy reading the, a comic where Spider Man eats Mary Jane's face off, and is like, oh, you know, writing nasty letters to them. Congress, it was congressman or whatever uh, and so they were like well you can't use any of the marquee characters so that's so and for some reason the editor Bill Roseman wanted to use Jocasta I can't remember why Bill Roseman is a Jocasta fixture fixation but then I was like well if we use Jocasta let's use Machine Man who has always been one of my favorite characters so um, Ralph Macchio did not want me to use Machine Man because he despised the Warren Ellis book Next Wave hmm where he made Machine Man kind of this bender from Futurana type, who's this drunk who hates humans and stuff. But I, I sweet talk Ralph into convincing that, that we would use the opportunity of putting Machine Man and Marvel Zombies to make him more heroic again. And so that's the only way I got Machine Man. And I basically went and then wrote him exactly as Warren Ellis did. I got away with it, you know. So um, you also uh, you also wrote a, a Taskmaster book, actually, kind of giving the character an origin. 
how was that kind of putting that together? And was there any, was that a pitch that you had? Or did they come to you for that? Because you kind of redefined the character and gave him actual real backstory. Yeah, Lauren Sankovich uh, was one of the Avengers editors and asked me if I wanted to do a Taskmaster thing. And initially I was like, nah. I don't know, who cares? He looks like Skeletor, you know, I don't know if I can deal with him. <laughs> but then for some reason that night, we were at a bar somewhere and she pitched this to me and I was like, oh, maybe, I don't know, let me think about it. For some reason though, just totally randomly as I was falling asleep and I put my head in the pill, I just can't, the idea just hit me that he basically Taskmaster's power is his super memory. And what if, like a, a computer that's maxed out its memory and you have to start deleting files, what if all of these abilities that he's memorized have also deleted his personal memories? You know, the difference between short-term and long-term memory, between muscle memory and, and I believe it's spatial memory. Anyway, it's a while since I wrote that. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that sort of seemed like really – it's always trying to find – because to me, any story, a superhero story, a zombie story, a mystery story, whatever it is, you, you need that that hump – you need to get about that hump of, of why do I care? And once I sort of realized that you could do this sort of poignant, tragic thing with Triax Master, that made it much more interesting to me as opposed to, you know, let's go fuck up some terrorists or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, a random action thing. That, that I don't really have any interest in. Uh, you got to create the newest version of Power Man. What was that? Like, that's, like, that's kind of a cool concept. Uh, how did you kind of put that together? They were doing a crossover with the street-level characters in Daredevil called Shadowland. And since Luke Cage was no longer using Power Man, they decided to give a new character it. And they in, in Immortal Iron Fist, they had Danny Rand um, running a dojo in Harlem or Washington Heights or somewhere. And so they thought this kid would be one of the members of Iron Fist's dojo. Um... Their initial idea was the kid was like 12, but they called himself Pirate Power Man. They thought that was hilarious. And I was like, I don't really think that's that funny. Um, <laughs> let's make it a little bit older. Uh, and so basically then I came up with Victor's kind of backstory. And then, then Mahmoud Asrar, who is a terrific artist, who's do, working with uh, Greg on Hulk right now, just did the design and kind of all clicked from there and uh, the power effect with the bubbles and stuff. And that's super cool. How did you start working on uh, Ivar Tomwalker? Where'd that come from? Uh, Ivar Time Walker was created by Barry Windsor Smith uh, as part of the Archer and Armstrong run in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. He's fairly obviously a ripoff of Doctor Who. Uh, and Barry, who's British, of course, uh, you know, that was a time when Doctor was not on the air. And so I just came with this idea. I was writing Archer and Armstrong at the time, and Ivar was a character, was a reoccurring, minor but reoccurring character in the book. Armstrong's brother, and I just sort of, the, just the opening scene of the book just kind of popped in my head, and I kept sort of returning to it of just a woman working in a lab trying to invent time travel, and this time traveler come to her and said, hey, don't invent time travel, you're going to be killed. What? You know, then so the whole adventure kind of goes from there. Um, so, yeah, so... I've seen like two episodes of Doctor Who in my entire life, so. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I know a lot of people like, oh, it's just like Doctor Who. I'm like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> and uh, you're currently working on Generation Zero for Valiant as well. What's that experience been like? Well, it's been great. As I, as I mentioned before, I'm working with Modox 11 artist Francis Portella. Um, 
just seeing how his art has evolved and improved and just he was already great to begin with now he's just amazing um and we're having a really great time with it doing kind of a creepy science fiction young adult story about uh, superpowered kids investigating evil in a very small michigan town and i guess also you've been working on uh, the slapstick infinite comic yes and it will soon be a paper comic no, what what I, I've always curious to ask people. So, how did you approach writing the Infinite comic? Given how you know it's a very different process. Well, it's similar and very different at the same time in terms of how the the reader actually kind of reads the comic. How did you approach writing it? Well, I'm co-plotting with the and with Riley Brown, who semi invented the format, so that kind of helped quite a bit. Um, he really has that kind of medium down really well. Um, it's not that different. Um, I think that because Slapstick's essentially a living tune and there's a lot sort of more, there's like an animation theme going on, it lends itself a lot more to that format. There's a gag we're actually doing in the fourth issue that, that if you don't have the infinite comic, you only have the paper comic, you are kind of losing a little bit because it's a very kind of cinematic, very quick cutting gag that doesn't really work in comics. But uh, it's pretty funny. So I hope people get the. I hope they get the infinite comic. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to kind of? It's almost like you're adapting, like as you say, more of a you know a cinematic work to a more static medium with going just to a the, the print version. Um, besides, kind of losing some of the the humor in that kind of area, how else is, has it been different to adapt it? You know, it's really not. I mean, it's. All the infinite comic really is is just you know anyone who has a comicsology account and reads comics of comicsology or the Marvel app or the DC app or any one of the number of the publisher specific apps. It's just a panel. It's using those panel to panel transitions rather than simply as an easy way to go from beat to beat on your phone to actually incorporate that transition into your storytelling. Mm. Um, the obvious, the you know, the thing. That, so you get these sort of neat animated effects. So if you, so for example, uh, in Slapstick number three, there's a bit, there's a gag where uh, Slapstick has encountered these armor agents. Armor is the uh, is the alternate reality monitoring and operational response agency. It's the it's the interdimensional version of Shield that actually created Marvel Zombies. Uh, but Slapstick is kind of working with them in his series, and so he's trying to impress these female agents, but his pants broke. So Slapstick has infinite pants. He has basically pants of holding. He can just reach into his pants and grab any number of things. Uh, but they get broke in, in Slapstick 3, and so all this crap goes everywhere. Until he, and so he's talking to the girls at the end, and as he's saying how suave he is, the first panel is he's talking, and the second panel is his pants fall down. So it's the exact same panel as before, his pants fell down. And the third panel figures are pretty much staying the same, and then Slapstick pulls the pants up. So it's three panels. Pants up, pants down, pants up, right? Mm-hmm. With mild variations. That when you click through it very rapidly in panel-to-panel transition, gives sort of a pseudo-cinematic effect. Now, I mean, if you've read your Scott McCloud, Understanding Comics, you know you get pretty much identically the same effect just reading it on the page. True. But that's sort of the example. I'm t- that, that's sort of what I'm talking about. That's how it's... You know, like if you look at a piece of celluloid, a piece of film, it's many images with this kind of 
you know, very gradual change in motion in each frame. Mm-hmm. Same concept, but much cruder and, you know, not as fluid because you have less frames. It's like the uh, the flipbooks used to get in serial. <laughs> yeah, but even less so, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like flipbooks, but you only, you know, have those kinds of things. Like I'm saying, you know, a flipbook is, what, 30 images-ish. True. Uh, the the pants gag in slapstick's three. <laughs> Man, it could have been thirty though. <laughs> no, because Marvel wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to plug at the moment? Or current things you're working on? Other projects? Sure, uh, I'll plug Comic Book History Comics, which is coming up from IDW right now. Uh, it's a series that Brian Dunlavy and one of the aforementioned people I met at the Comics Club in San, in Syracuse. Uh, Ryan and Liam, I did the series originally uh, as black and white floppy issues uh, starting in 2008 um, but IDW has brought them back in color with new material we've got the prehistory of comics now we've got the uh, her story of comics featuring uh, female comics creators and uh, it is the first time to my knowledge that the history of comics from before it was from the yellow kid to today now it's from cave paintings to today so we've expanded our scope somewhat. Uh, it's being told in the comics medium. So I hope folks check it out. The first issue dropped uh, two or three weeks ago, and the second should be on its way soon. Nice. And how many issues are there going to be? Of the color, I think we're doing, I think they're going to break it up into two separate series. The first series is six issues. Okay. And what's, I guess, the cutoff with the first series in terms of time? Uh, my Essentially, my birth. <laughs> so <Somewhat> coincidentally. <laughs> Uh, does not mention the comic, but it ends in the early 70s. So I, 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 think, uh, I think you should make an edit and make sure that you're in there. Fair enough. Well, I think we are. Yeah, we are actually in the first issue doing uh, doing Vaudeville, um, which is how you should always appear in your own comic. Uh, but yeah, the last story of this version is our crumb. So it, it's the last thing is the release of Nine Lines with the Prince of Cat, which is 74. Any other projects? Many. Uh, Marvel one I can't talk about Slapstick which is ongoing Valiant one I can't talk about um, I have a prose novel coming out uh, in July 10 Dead Comedians from Cork so nice. if you like laughing and mysteries check it out uh, I'm forgetting something uh, Z Nation I'm doing the Z Nation uh, comics prequel that'll be out from Dynamite working with the sci-fi show's creator co-creator Craig Engler we're having a good time with that oh wow that's cool yeah so a lot of different types of things, a lot of different types of genres. Keeps me off the streets. <laughs> That's all we can ever hope for, right? Well, don't, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, Fred, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about uh, your career in comics thus far, uh, some of your selected projects, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a lot of the great stuff you have coming up next year. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure.